Section 21 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology by the Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 41, Tunnel Engineering, A Museum Treatment by Robert M. Vogel, Part 3, Soft Ground Tunneling. So great is the difference between hard rock and soft ground tunneling that they constitute two almost separate branches of the field. In penetrating ground, lacking the firmness or cohesion to support itself above an opening, the miner's chief concern is not that of removing the material, but of preventing its collapse into his excavation. The primitive methods, depending upon brute strength and direct application of fire and human force, were suitable for assault on rock, but lacked the artifice needed for delving into less stable material. Roman engineers were accomplished in spanning subterranean ways with masonry arches, but apparently most of their work was done by cut-and-cover methods rather than by actual mining. Not until the Middle Ages did this skill of effective working openings in soft ground develop, and not until the Renaissance was this development so consistently successful that it could be considered a science. Renaissance Mining from the earliest periods of rock-working, the quest for minerals and metals was the primary force that drove men underground. It was the technology of mining, the product of slow evolution over the centuries, that became the technology of the early tunnel, with no significant modification except in size of workings. Every aspect of 16th-century mining is definitively detailed in Georgius Agricola's remarkable Dere Metallica, first published in Basel in 1556. During its time of active influence, which extended for two centuries, it served as the authoritative work on the subject. It remains today an unparalleled early record of an entire branch of technology. The superb woodcuts of mind workings and tools in themselves constitute a precise description of the techniques of the period, and provide an ideal source of information upon which to base the first model in the soft ground series. The model representing a typical European mine demonstrates the early use of timber frames, or sets, to support the soft material of the walls and roof. In areas of only moderate instability, the sets alone were sufficient to counteract the earth pressure and were spaced according to the degree of support required. In more extreme conditions, a solid lagging of small poles or boards was set outside the frames, as shown in the model, to provide absolute support of the ground. Details of the framing, the windlass, and all tools and appliances were supplied by Agricola, with no need for interpretation or interpolation. The basic framing pattern of sill, side posts, and cap piece all mortised together with lagging used where needed, was translated unaltered into tunneling practice, particularly in small exploratory drifts, and remained in this application until well into the 20th century. The pressure exerted upon tunnels of large area was countered during construction by timbering systems of great elaboration, evolved from the basic one. 
By the time that tunnels of section large enough to accommodate canals and railways were being undertaken as matter-of-course civil engineering works, a series of nationally distinguishable systems had emerged, each possessing characteristic points of favor and fault. As might be suspected, the English system of tunneling, timbering, for instance, was rarely applied on the continent, nor were the German, Austrian, or Belgian systems normally seen in Great Britain. All were used at one time or another in this country until the American system was introduced in about 1855. While the timbering commonly remained in place in mines, it would be followed up by permanent masonry arching and lining and tunnel work. Overhead in the Museum Hall of Civil Engineering are frames representing the English, Austrian, and American systems. Nearby, a small relief models, figure 19, is used to show the sequence of enlargement in a soft-ground railroad tunnel of about 1855, using the Austrian system. Temporary timber supports of tunnels fell from use gradually, after the advent of shield tunneling in conjunction with cast-iron lining. This formed a perfect support immediately behind the shield, as well as the permanent lining of the tunnel. Brunnell's Thames Tunnel The interior surfaces of tunnels through ground, merely unstable, are amenable to support by various systems of timbering and arching. This becomes less true as the fluidity of the ground increases. The soft material which normally comprises the beds of rivers can approach an almost liquid condition, resulting in a hydraulic head from the overbearing water sufficient to prevent the driving of even the most carefully worked drift, supported by simple timbering. The basic defect of the timbering systems used in mining and tunneling was that there was inevitably a certain amount of the face or ceiling unsupported just previous to setting a frame, or placing over it the necessary section of lagging. In mine work, runny soil could and did break through such gaps, filling the working. For this reason, there were no serious attempts made before 1825 to drive subaqueous tunnels. In that year, work was started on a tunnel under the Thames, between the Rotherhithe and Wapping sections of London, under guidance of the already famous engineer Mark Isambard Brunel, 1769-1849, father of I.K. Brunel. The undertaking is of great interest in that Brunel employed an entirely novel apparatus of his own invention to provide continuous and reliable support of the soft water-bearing clay, which formed the riverbed. By means of this shield, Brunel was able to drive the world's first subaqueous tunnel. The shield was of cast iron, rectangular in elevation, and was propelled forward by jack screws. Shelves at top, bottom, and sides supported the tunnel roof, floor, and walls until the permanent brick lining was placed. The working face, the critical area, was supported by a large number of small breasting boards, held against the ground by small individual screws bearing against the shield framework. The shield itself was formed of twelve separate frames, each of which could be advanced independently of the others. The height was twenty-two feet, three inches. The width, thirty-seven feet, six inches. The progress was piecemeal. In operation, the miners would remove one breasting board at a time, excavate in front of it, and then replace it in the advanced position about six inches forward. This was repeated with the next board above or below, and the sequence continued, until the ground for the entire height of one of the twelve sections had been removed. The board screws for that section 
were shifted to bear on the adjacent frames, relieving the frame of longitudinal pressure. It could then be screwed forward by the amount of advance, the screws bearing to the rear on the completed masonry. Thus, step by step, the tunnel progressed slowly, the greatest weekly advance being 14 feet. In the left-hand portion of the model is the shaft sunk to begin operations. Here also is shown the bucket hoist for removing the spoil. The V-type steam engine powering the hoist was designed by Brunel. At the right of the main model is an enlarged detail of the shield, actually an improved version built in 1835. The work continued despite setbacks of every sort. The financial ones need no recounting here. Technically, although the shield principle proved workable, the support afforded was not infallible. Four or five times the river broke through the thin covering of silt and flooded the workings, despite the utmost caution in excavating. When this occurred, masses of clay, sandbags, and mats were dumped over the opening in the riverbed to seal it as the tunnel pumped out. I.K. Brunel acted as superintendent and nearly lost his life on a number of occasions. After several suspensions of work resulting from withdrawal or exhaustion of support, one lasting seven years, the work was completed in 1843. Despite the fact that Brunel had for the first time demonstrated a practical method for tunneling in firm and water-bearing ground, the enormous cost of the work and the almost overwhelming problems encountered had a discouraging effect rather than otherwise. Not for another quarter of a century was a similar project undertaken. The Thames Tunnel was used for foot and light highway traffic until about 1870, when it was incorporated into the London Underground Railway System, which it continues to serve today. The roofed-over top sections of the two shafts may still be seen from the river. A number of contemporary popular accounts of the tunnel exist, but one of the most thorough and interesting expositions on a single tunnel work of any period is Henry Law's A Memoir of the Thames Tunnel, published in 1845 to 1846 by John Wheel. Law, an eminent civil engineer, covers the work in incredible detail from its inception until the major suspension in late 1828 when slightly more than half completed. The most valuable aspect of his record is a series of plates of engineering drawings of the shield and its components, which, so far as is known, exist nowhere else. These form the basis of the enlarged section of the shield, shown to the right of the model of the tunnel itself. A vertical section through the shield is reproduced here from law, for comparison with the model, figures 21 and 23. The Tower Subway Various inventors attempted to improve upon the Brunel shield, aware of the fundamental soundness of the shield principle. Almost all bypassed the rectangular sectional construction used in the Thames Tunnel, and took as a starting point a sectional shield of circular cross-section, advanced by Brunel in his original patent of 1818. James Henry Greathead, 1844-1896, rightfully called the father of modern subaqueous tunneling, surmised in later years that Brunel had chosen a rectangular configuration for actual use as one better adapted to the sectional type of shield. The English civil engineer Peter W. Barlow, in 1864 and 1868, patented a circular shield, of one piece which was the basis of one used by him in constructing a small subway 
of 1,350 feet beneath the Thames in 1869, the first work to follow the lead of Brunel. Greathead, acting as Barlow's contractor, was the designer of the shield actually used in the work, but it was obviously inspired by Barlow's patents. The reduction of the multiplicity of parts in the Brunel shield to a single rigid unit was of immense advantage, and in advance perhaps equal to the shield concept of tunneling itself. The Barlow Greathead shield was like the cap of a telescope, with a sharpened circular ring on the front to assist in penetrating the ground. The diaphragm functioned, as did Brunel's breasting boards, to resist the longitudinal earth pressure of the face, and the cylindrical portion behind the diaphragm bore the radial pressure of roof and walls. Here also, for the first time, a permanent lining formed of cast-iron segments was used, a second major advancement in soft-ground tunneling practice. Not only could the segments be placed and bolted together far more rapidly than masonry lining could be laid up, but unlike the green masonry, it could immediately bear the full force of the shield-propelling screws. Barlow, capitalizing on Brunel's error in burrowing so close to the riverbed, maintained an average cover of thirty feet over the tunnel, driving through a solid stratum of firm London clay, which was virtually impervious to water. As the result of this, combined with the advantages of the solid shield and the rapidly placed iron lining, the work moved forward at a pace and with a facility in startling contrast to that of the Thames Tunnel, although in fairness it must be recalled that the face area was far less. The clay was found sufficiently sound that it could be readily excavated without the support of the diaphragm, and normally three miners worked in front of the shield, digging out the clay and passing it back through a doorway in the plate. This could be closed in case of a sudden settlement or break-in. Following excavation, the shield was advanced 18 inches into the excavated area by means of six screws, and a ring of lining segments, 18 inches in length, bolted to the previous ring, under cover of the overlapping rear skirt of the shield. The small annulus space left between the outside of the lining and the clay, by the thickness and clearance of the skirt, about an inch, was filled with thin cement grout. The tunnel was advanced 18 inches during each eight-hour shift. The work continued around the clock, and the 900-foot river section was completed in only 14 weeks. The entire work was complete almost without incident in just under a year, a remarkable performance for the world's second subaqueous tunnel. The tower subway at first operated with cylindrical cars that nearly filled the seven-foot bore. The cars were drawn by cables powered by small steam engines in the shafts. This mode of power had previously been used in passenger service, only on the Greenwich Street Elevated Railway in New York. Later, the cars were abandoned is unprofitable, and the tunnel turned into a footway of figure 32. This small tunnel, the successful driving due entirely to Greathead's skill, was the forerunner of the modern subaqueous tunnel. In it, two of the three elements essential to such work thereafter were first applied, the one-piece movable shield of circular section and the segmental cast-iron lining. The documentation of this work is far thinner than for the Thames Tunnel. The most accurate source of technical information is a brief historical account in Copperthwaite's classic Tunnel Shields and the Use of Compressed Air in Subaqueous Works, 
published in 1906. Copperthwaite, a successful tunnel engineer, laments the fact that he was able to turn up no drawing or original data on this first shield of greatheads, but he presents a sketch of it prepared in the greathead office in 1895, which is presumably a fair representation. Figure 33. The tower subway model was built on the basis of this, and several woodcuts of the working area that appeared contemporaneously in the illustrated press. In this and the adjacent model of Beach's Broadway subway, the tunnel axis had been placed on an angle to the viewer, projecting the bore into the case so that the complete circle of the working face is included for a more suggestive effect. This was possible because of the short length of the work included. Henry S. Drinker, also a tunnel engineer and author of the most comprehensive work on tunneling ever published, treats rock tunneling in exhaustive detail up to 1878. His notice of what he terms submarine tunneling is extremely brief. He does, however, draw a most interesting comparison between the first Thames Tunnel built by Brunel and the second built by Greathead, 26 years later. First Thames Tunnel. Brickwork lining, 38 feet wide by 22 and a half feet high. Second Thames Tunnel, the Tower Subway. Cast iron lining of 8 feet outside diameter. First Thames Tunnel, 120-ton cast iron shield, accommodating 36 miners. Second Thames Tunnel, Tower Subway, 2.5-ton wrought iron shield, accommodating at most three men. First Thames Tunnel, Workings filled by eruption of river five times. Second Thames Tunnel, Tower Subway. Water encountered at almost any time could have been gathered in a stable pail. First Thames Tunnel. Eighteen years elapsed between start and finish of work. Second Thames Tunnel, Subway Tower. Work completed in about eleven months. First Thames Tunnel cost three million dollars. Second Thames Tunnel, Tower Subway. Cost $100,000. Beach's Broadway Subway Almost simultaneously with the construction of the Tower Subway, the first American Shield Tunnel was driven by Alfred Eli Beach, 1826 to 1896. Beach, as editor of the Scientific American and inventor of, among other things, a successful typewriter as early as 1856, was well-known and respected in technical circles. He was not a civil engineer, but had become concerned with New York's pressing traffic problem, even then, and as a solution, developed plans for a rapid transit subway to extend the length of Broadway. He invented a shield as an adjunct to the system, solely to permit driving of the tunnel without disturbing the overlying streets. An active patent attorney as well, Beach must certainly have known of and studied the existing patents for tunneling shields which were without exception British. In certain aspects, his shield resembled the one patented by Barlow in 1864, but never built. However, work on the Beach Tunnel started in 1869, so close in time to that on the Tower Subway that it is unlikely that there was any influence from that source. Beach had himself patented a shield in June of 1869, a two-piece sectional design that bore no resemblance to the one used. His subway plan had been first introduced at the 1867 fair of the American Institute in the form of a short plywood tube 
through which a small close-fitting car was blown by a fan. The car carried twelve passengers. Sensing opposition to the subway scheme from Tammany in 1868, Beach obtained a charter to place a small tube beneath Broadway for transporting mail and small packages pneumatically, a plan he advocated independently of the passenger subway. Under this thin pretense of legal authorization, the Subrosa excavation began from the basement of a clothing store on Warren Street, near Broadway. The eight-foot diameter tunnel ran eastward a short distance, made a ninety-degree turn, and thence southward under Broadway to stop a block away from under the south side of Murray Street. The total distance was about 312 feet. Work was carried on at night in total secrecy, the actual tunneling taking 58 nights. At the Warren Street terminal, a waiting room was excavated, and a large roots blower installed for propulsion of the single-passenger car. The plan was similar to that used with the model in 1867. The cylindrical car fitted the circular tunnel with only slight circumferential clearance. The blower created a plenum within the waiting room and tunnel area behind the car of about 0.25 pounds per square inch, resulting in a thrust on the car of almost a ton, not accounting for blow-by. The car was thus blown along its course and was returned by reversing the blower's suction and discharge ducts to produce an equivalent vacuum within the tunnel. The system opened in February of 1870 and remained in operation for about a year. Beach was ultimately subdued by the hostile influences of Boss Tweed, and the project was completely abandoned. Within a very few more years, the first commercially operated elevated line was built, but the subway did not achieve legitimate status in New York until the opening of the Interborough Line in 1904. Ironically, its route traversed Broadway for almost the length of the island. The beach shield operated with perfect success in this brief trial, although the loose sandy soil encountered was admittedly not a severe test of its qualities. No diaphragm was used. Instead, a series of eight horizontal shelves with sharpened leading edges extended across the front opening of the shield. The outstanding feature of the machine was the substitution for the propelling screws used by Brunel and Greathead of 18 hydraulic rams, set around its circumference. These were fed by a single-hand-operated pump, seen in the center of figure 34. By this means, the course of the shield's forward movement could be controlled with a convenience and precision not attainable with screws. Vertical and horizontal deflection was achieved by throttling the supply of water to certain of the rams, which could be individually controlled, causing greater pressure on one portion of the shield than another. This system has not changed in the ensuing time, except, of course, in the substitution of mechanically produced hydraulic pressure for hand. Unlike the driving of the tower subway, no excavation was done in front of the shield. Rather, the shield was forced by the rams into the soil for the length of their stroke the material which entered being supported by the shelves. This was removed from the shelves and hauled off. The ram plungers then were withdrawn, and a 16-inch length of permanent lining built up within the shelter of the shield's tail ring. Against this, the rams bore for the next advance. Masonry lining was used in the straight section, cast iron in the curved. The juncture is shown in the model. 
Enlarged versions of the beat shield were used in a few tunnels in the Midwest in the early 1870s, but from then on until 1886, the shield method, for no clear reason, again entered a period of disuse, finding no application on either side of the Atlantic, despite its virtually unqualified proof at the hands of Greathead and Beach. Little precise information remains on this work. The beach system of pneumatic transit is described fully in a well-illustrated booklet published by him in January of 1868, in which the American Institute model is shown, and many projected systems of pneumatic propulsion as well as of subterranean and subaqueous tunneling described. Beach, again, presumably, is author of the sole contemporary account of the Broadway subway, which appeared in Scientific American following its opening early in 1870. Included are good views of the tunnel and car, of the shield in operation, and, most important, a vertical sectional view through the shield, figure 35. It is interesting to note that optical surveys for maintenance of the course apparently were not used. The article illustrated and described the driving each night of a jointed iron rod up through the tunnel roof to the street twenty or so feet above for testing the position. The First Hudson River Tunnel Despite the ultimate success of Brunel's Thames Tunnel in 1843, the shield in that case afforded only moderately reliable protection because of the fluidity of the soil driven through, and its tendency to enter the works through the smallest opening in the shield's defense. An English doctor who had made physiological studies of the effects on workmen of the high air pressure within diving bells is said to have recommended to Brunel in 1828 that he introduce an atmosphere of compressed air into the tunnel to exclude the water and support the work face. The plan was first formally described by Sir Thomas Cochrane, 1775 to 1860, in a British patent of 1830. Conscious of Brunel's problems, he proposed a system of shaft sinking, mining, and tunneling in water-bearing materials by filling the excavated area with air sufficiently above atmospheric pressure to prevent the water from entering and to support the earth. In this, and his description of airlocks for passage of men and materials between the atmosphere and the pressurized area, Cochrane fully outlined the essential features of pneumatic excavation as developed since. In 1839, a French engineer first used the system in sinking a mine shaft through a watery stratum. From then on, the sinking of shafts and somewhat later the construction of bridge pier foundations by the pneumatic method became almost commonplace engineering practice in Europe and America. Not until 1879, however, was the system tried in tunneling work. And then, as with the shield ten years earlier, almost simultaneously here and abroad. The first application was in a small river tunnel in Antwerp, only five feet in height. This project was successfully completed, relying on compressed air alone to support the earth, no shield being used. The importance of the work cannot be considered great due to its lack of scope. In 1871, DeWitt C. Haskin, 1822-1900, a West Coast mine and railroad builder, became interested in the pneumatic caissons then being used to found the river piers of Eads Mississippi River Bridge at St. Louis. In apparent total ignorance of the Cochrane patent, 
he evolved a similar system for tunneling water-bearing media, and in 1873 proposed the construction of a tunnel through the silt beneath the Hudson to provide rail connection between New Jersey and New York City. It would be difficult to imagine a site more in need of such communication. All lines from the south terminated along the west shore of the river, and the immense traffic, cars, freight, and passengers, was carried across to Manhattan Island by ferry and barge, with staggering inconvenience and at enormous cost. A bridge would have been, and still is, almost out of the question, due not only to the width of the crossing, but to the flatness of both banks. To provide sufficient navigational clearance without a draw span, impractically long approaches would have been necessary to obtain a permissibly gentle grade. Haskin formed a tunneling company and began working with the sinking of a shaft in Hoboken on the New Jersey side. In a month it was halted because of an injunction by, curiously, the D.L. and W. Railroad, who feared for their vast investment in terminal and marine facilities. Not until of November of 1879 was the injunction lifted and work again commenced. The shaft was completed and an airlock located in one wall, from which the tunnel proper was to be carried forward. It was Haskin's plan to use no shield, relying solely on the pressure of compressed air to maintain the work faces and prevent the entry of water. The air was admitted in late December, and the first large-scale pneumatic tunneling operation launched. A single 26-foot double-track bore was at first undertaken, but a work face of such diameter proved unmanageable, and two oval tubes, 18 feet high by 16 feet wide, were substituted, each carrying a single track. Work went forward with reasonable facility, considering the lack of precedent. A temporary entrance was formed of sheet iron rings from the airlock down to the tunnel grade, at which point the permanent work of the north tube was started. Immediately behind the excavation at the face, a lining of thin wrought iron plates was built up to provide form for the two-foot permanent brick lining that followed. The three stages are shown in the model in about their proper relationship of progress. The work is shown passing beneath an old timber crib bulkhead used for stabilizing the shoreline. The silt of the riverbed was about the consistency of putty and under good conditions formed a secure barrier between the excavation and the river above. It was easily excavated and for removal was mixed with water and blown out through a pipe into the shaft by the higher pressure in the tunnel. About half was left in the bore for removal later. The basic scheme was workable, but in operation, an extreme precision was required in regulating the air pressure in the work area. It was soon found that there existed an 11 psi difference between the pressure of water on the top and the bottom of the working face, due to the 22-foot high of the unlined opening. Thus it was impossible to maintain perfect pneumatic balance of the external pressure over the entire face. It was necessary to strike an average with the result that some water entered at the bottom of the face where the water pressure was greatest, and some air leaked out at the top, where the water pressure was below the air pressure. Constant attention was essential. Several men did nothing but watch the behavior of the leaks and adjusted the pressure as the ground density changed with advance. Air was supplied by several steam-driven compressors at the surface. 
The airlock permitted passage back and forth of men and supplies between the atmosphere and the work area, without disturbing the pressure differential. The principle is demonstrated by an animated model set into the main model to the left of the shaft, figure 39. The variation of pressure within the lock chamber to match the atmosphere or the pressurized area, depending on the direction of passage, is clearly shown by simplified valves and gauges and by the use of light in varying color density. In the Haskin tunnel, five to ten minutes were taken to pass the miners through the lock so as to avoid too abrupt a physiological change. Despite caution, a blowout occurred in July of 1880 due to air leakage not at the face but around the temporary entrance. One door of the airlock jammed and twenty men drowned resulting in an inquiry which brought forth much of the distrust with which Haskin was regarded by the engineering profession. His ability and qualifications were subjected to the bitterest attack in and by the technical press. There is some indication that, although the project began with a staff of competent engineers, they were alienated by Haskin in the course of work, and at least one withdrew. Haskin's remarks in his own defense indicate that some of the denunciation was undoubtedly justified. And yet, despite this reaction, the fundamental merit of the pneumatic tunneling method had been demonstrated by Haskin and was immediately recognized and freely acknowledged. It was apparent at the same time, however, that air by itself did not provide a sufficiently reliable support for large area tunnel works in unstable ground. And this remains the only major subaqueous tunnel work driven with air alone. After the accident, work continued under Haskin until 1882 when funds ran out. About 1,600 feet of the north tube and 600 feet of the south tube had been completed. Greathead resumed operations with a shield for a British company in 1889, but exhaustion of funds again caused stoppage in 1891. The tunnel was finally completed in 1904 and is now in use as part of the Hudson and Manhattan Rapid Transit System, never providing the sought-after rail link. A splendid document of the Haskin portion of the work is S.D.V. Burr's Tunneling Under the Hudson River, published in 1885. It is based entirely upon first-hand material and contains drawings of most of the work, including the auxiliary apparatus. It is interesting to note that electric illumination, arc, not incandescent lights, and telephones were used, unquestionably the first employment of either in tunnel work. The St. Clair Tunnel The final model of the soft ground series, reflex, as did the Huzak Tunnel model for hard rock tunneling, final emergence into the modern period. Although the St. Clair Tunnel was completed over 70 years ago, it typifies in its method of construction the basic procedures of subaqueous work in the present day. The Thames Tunnel of Bruno and Haskins' efforts beneath the Hudson had clearly shown that by themselves both the shield and pneumatic systems of driving through fluid ground were defective in practice for tunnels of large area. Note that the earliest successful works by each method had been a very small area so that the influence of adverse conditions was greatly diminished. The first man to perceive and seize upon the benefits to be gained by combining the two systems was, most fittingly, Greathead. Although he had projected the technique earlier, 
in driving the underground city and south london railway in eighteen eighty six he brought together for the first time the three fundamental elements essential for the practical tunneling of soft water-bearing ground compressed air support of the work during construction the movable shield and cast-iron permanent winding the marriage was a happy one indeed the limitations of each system were almost perfectly overcome by the qualities of the others the conditions prevailing in eighteen eighty two at the sarnia ontario terminal of the grand trunk railway both operational and physical were almost precisely the same as those which inspired the undertaking of the hudson river tunnel the heavy traffic at this vital u s canada rail interchange was ferried inconveniently across the wide st clair river and the bank and river conditions precluded construction of a bridge a tunnel was projected by the railway in that year the time when haskins tribulations were at their height perhaps because of this lack of precedent for a work of such size nothing was done immediately in eighteen eighty four the railway organized a tunnel company in eighteen eighty six test borings were made in the riverbed and small exploratory drifts were started across from both banks by normal methods of mine timbering the natural gas quicksand and water encountered soon stopped the work it was at this time that the railway's president visited great heads city and south london workings the obvious answer to the st clair problem lay in the successful conduct of the subway joseph hobson chief engineer of the grand trunk and of the tunnel project in designing a shield is said to have searched for drawings of the shields used in the broadway and tower subways of eighteen sixty eight through nine but unable to locate any he relied to a limited extent on the small drawings of those in drinker's volume there is no explanation as to why he did not have drawings of the city and south london shield at that moment in use unless one considers the rather unlikely possibility that greathead maintained its design in secrecy the hobson shield followed greatheads as closely as any other and having a diaphragm with closable doors but a modification of beach's sharpened horizontal shelves was also used however these functioned more as working platforms than supports for the earth the machine was twenty-one and a half feet in diameter in unprecedented size and almost twice that of greathead's current one it was driven by twenty-four hydraulic rams throughout the entire preliminary consideration of the project there was a marked sense of caution that amounted to what seems an almost total lack of confidence and success commencement of the work from vertical shafts was planned so that if the tunnel itself failed no expenditure would have been made for approach work in april of eighteen eighty eight the shafts were started near both river banks but before reaching proper depth the almost fluid clay and silt flowed up faster than could be excavated and this plan was abandoned after this second inauspicious start long open approach cuts were made and the work finally began the portals were established in the cuts several thousand feet back from each bank and there the tunneling itself began the portions under the shore were driven without air when the banks were reached brick bulkheads containing airlocks were built across the opening and the section beneath the river about three thousand seven hundred and ten feet long driven under air pressure 
of 10 to 28 pounds above atmosphere. For most of the way the clay was firm, and there was little air leakage. It was found that horses could not survive in the compressed air, and so mules were used under the river. In the firm clay, excavation was carried on several feet in front of the shield, as shown in the model of figure 42. About twelve miners worked at the face. However, in certain strata, the clay encountered was so fluid that the shield could be simply driven forward by the rams, causing the muck to flow in at the door openings without excavation. After each advance, the rams were retracted, and a ring of iron-lining segments built up, as in the tower subway. Here, for the first time, an erector arm was used for placing the segments, which weighed about half a ton. In all respects, the work advanced with wonderful facility and lack of operational difficulty. Considering the large area, no subaqueous tunnel had ever been driven with such speed. The average monthly progress for the American and Canadian headings totaled 455 feet, and at top efficiency, 10 rings or a length of 15.3 feet could be set in a 24-hour day in each heading. The 6,000 feet of tunnel was driven in just a year. The two shields met via V in August of 1890. The transition was complete. The work had been closely followed by the technical journals, and the reports of its successful accomplishment thus were brought to the attention of the entire civil engineering profession. As the first major subaqueous tunnel completed in America, and the first in the world of a size able to accommodate full-scale rail traffic, the St. Clair Tunnel served to dispel the doubts surrounding such work, and established a pattern for a mode of tunneling which has since changed only in matters of detail. Of the eight models, only this one was built under the positive guidance of original documents. In the possession of the Canadian National Railways are drawings not only of all elements of the shield and lining, but of much of the auxiliary apparatus used in construction. Such materials rarely survive, and do so in this case only because of the foresight of the railway, which, to avoid paying a high profit margin to a private contractor as compensation for the risk and uncertainty involved, carried the contract itself, and therefore preserved all original drawing records. While the engineering of tunnels has been comprehensively treated in this paper from the historical standpoint, it is well to still reflect that the advances made in tunneling have not perceptibly removed the elements of uncertainty, but have only provided more positive and effective means of countering their forces. Still to be faced are the surprises of hidden streams, geologic faults, shifts of strata, unstable materials, and areas of extreme pressure and temperature. End of section 21